Well, good morning. And uh, today we're going to be in Psalm 131. So please grab your Bible. My name is Tim, and I'm one of the elders here at Hope Church. Delighted you're able to join us uh, this morning. As a church, we've been going through a number of psalms called the Songs of Ascent. And uh, last week, Becky was speaking on the fear of the Lord. And today's psalm fits nicely alongside what Becky had to share last week. So if you've not heard her message, I'd encourage you to do so. So I'm reading from the CSB translation. So please follow along with me if you have your Bible. So Psalm 131. And the title of this message is this, God loves humility. God loves humility. Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I do not get involved with things too great or too wondrous for me. Instead, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. My soul is like a weaned child. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forever. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you today as your children, acknowledging that you are good, that you are kind, merciful, gracious towards us, acknowledging our weakness and dependence upon you. And we're grateful, Lord, for this privilege we have to take some time now to hear your word spoken. I pray let this seed fall onto fertile soil. I pray the seed wouldn't be snatched away. Let it grow a harvest, Lord, for your glory. Let us grow in our love and passion for you, Lord Jesus Christ. Let us learn from your example. Let us be imitators of you. We long to be like you, Lord Jesus. No one was as humble. No one is as great an example to us as you are. So lift our gaze, I pray. Lift our eyes. Let us have a sense today of your wonder and glory. Let us sense it deeply, encountering you Again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. While this is an astonishing psalm, really, in many ways, it's very short. It's actually the second shortest psalm in the Bible. And the message of it is also very simple. But it starts in an odd fashion. Now, this is a prayer And David starts this prayer, and he says something. I wonder if you've ever prayed anything to God, you're glad no one heard you pray. Like, when I pray, I bring before God what's on my mind. I will confess my sins. I will share with God what's going on in my life. I will lay before him my needs and my vulnerability. I posture myself in in a way which is... I would, I think, uh, expressing my sense of weakness and inadequacy. And the funny thing is, is how this psalm starts, it doesn't sound like that. He starts by saying this, Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. Now, if someone declares to you, just so you know, I'm not proud. You kind of immediately go, okay, um, sounds like you're bragging about not being proud. Sounds like you might be proud. The person that says, I am not proud and declares it, 
it's a self-defeating statement, isn't it? And then he goes on to say, I do not get involved with things too great or too wondrous for me. I'm kind of departing maybe a little bit more from the pride. But then he says, I don't get involved in things too great or too wondrous for me. It's as if he's stepping back into a kind of real inadequacy. Oh, there are, there are wondrous things out there, and, but I, I stay back from this. This sounds like someone who would shrink away from a conflict. This sounds like somebody who wouldn't step into the battle, somebody who would hate confrontation, somebody who may be a Tempted to cowardice, perhaps? I do not get involved with things too great or too wondrous for me. Now, we're going to go through this psalm, but, but, but let's just take a moment to think about who it is who's writing this psalm. At the, the top of the psalm, your Bible will probably say this, a song of ascents of David. This is a psalm of David. David is writing this. Does this sound like David to you? Think about when we first encounter David in the Bible. We go back to 1 Samuel. We first meet him in chapter 16. But he's most famous for what takes place in chapter 17. I'm not going to go through it all in terms of reading all the text. But to, to remind you, in case you're unfamiliar, the Israelites are camped out facing across the valley the Philistines, their enemy. They are in gridlock. They're engaged in this battle, but it's all at the moment in gridlock. David, who's a shepherd, and he's a young man, he's a young man, he comes to the battle scene with food for his brothers. But what David finds as he arrives is all the soldiers, these big, burly, bearded men, sat around, huddled together, muttering under their breaths with panic and fear on their faces, biting their nails. And David inquires, and he says, what's going on? Why aren't we fighting? And then he is pointed to the giant across the valley. And everyone points at this big, ugly brute. And they're like, one of us has got to fight that guy. Look at the size of him. And David, David inquires some more. Well, why? Well, he's their biggest soldier. He's, he's the giant Goliath. And David then says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of God? That's his response. His brother hears him say this, and his brother's response to David is to say, you are arrogant. I see the evil of your heart. So, so his brother Eliab, hearing him say this, is ashamed of him because of what he perceives to be his pride in declaring what he said about Goliath. The next thing that happens is that David goes to King Saul. Now, King Saul is in charge of the Israelite army. King Saul is the, uh, the, the chief commanding officer of the armies of God, the, the Israelites at this time. He goes to Saul. He finds him. And this is what he says to King Saul, this young shepherd boy. He says to him, 
don't let anyone be discouraged by him. I assume he points over to Goliath. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And this is the guy who says in Psalm 131, I don't get involved with things that are too great or too wondrous for me. He's the one who says, I am not proud. So on the one hand, we have his brother saying, you are arrogant. And then we have him go to the king and say, I'm going to fight Goliath. So he's proud and he's up for a fight. And yet in Psalm 131, he seems to suggest he's neither of those things. What's going on here? Where does such courage come from? Where does the courage that David had here, where does it come from? Where does this confidence come from? What is it that emboldened him to speak words that no one else was speaking? To be willing to stand up and fight the giant that everyone was quaking in their boots from? Where does it come from? Let me tell you this. I believe it comes from true humility. True humility. David is truly humble. Now, if I was to say to you, describe for me someone who is humble, you may not have come up with a description of someone that fits the Goliath scene. Someone who is willing to fight. Someone who is confrontational. Someone who is prepared to call out the evil of others. How we find humility modeled to us in the Bible is maybe quite different to how we, many of us who are British, might define humility. I appreciate many of you aren't British and you may have a different definition. David is very challenging to us. You see, what's going on here is David walks into the battle scene clear in his mind and in his heart about who his God is. And because he has this huge God that he walks closely with, loves and worships, because he has this ever-present God before him who's come to his heart, David, this man after God's own heart, he knows who the true living God is. He walks into the battle, the scene of battle, confident, courageous, and bold because beside him is his God, the God that all the Israelites at this point had forgotten. So whilst he was surrounded by much bigger men, whilst he was surrounded by soldiers, he was really surrounded by cowards. He was surrounded by men who had been absolutely defeated by fear. And King Saul was one of those. And King Saul is set up for us in the Bible as an example of how so many of us in the world live, putting our confidence in, in that which is impressive in the eyes of the world. King Saul was chosen to be Israel's king by the Israelites. They wanted a king like Saul. They wanted one who was, who was impressive physically, who looked 
great, who was stronger than everybody else, taller than everybody else. It says of King Saul, he was heads and shoulders above everyone. And, and the Israelites had confidence in him to lead them into battle. That is until Goliath turns up, who's even bigger than Saul. And Saul is not putting himself forward to fight Goliath. Saul is self-confident. Saul is self-dependent. Saul is proud. I can't fight him. I'm not going to win against him. You see, triumphalism is at root very similar to defeatism. It predicts an outcome based upon man's ability. But when did God's people ever win any battle without God's help? Pride boasts in man's strength. Pride assumes man's ability to win and to conquer. But when we're faced by something bigger than ourselves, where do we go to find strength and confidence in that moment? Fear of man. That's really what's going on in 1 Samuel 17. The soldiers had a fear of man, admittedly a big one, but it was fear of man. David arrived fearing God. Humility is fearing God. We were hearing about that last week. Humility is to fear God. Humility is an awesome, overwhelming sense of the greatness of God. The fear of God is that. The fear of God is to see him as he is in his glory and splendor. But to see God as he is is to see one who calls us near on the count, of course, of the grace, the gift, the way made for us through the cross for us to come to approach and to embrace. Fear of man is a deadly poison. In Revelation 21, we have the scene before the judgment seat of God, which we will all be before one day. And it describes what happens there in verse 7. The one who conquers will inherit these things. That is glory and everlasting life. And I will be his God and he will be my son. Verse 8 of Revelation 21 says this, But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. There's a list of sins there. Did you see which was the first? The cowards. It's a really sobering and quite shocking picture that at the final judgment, as great crowds of people are sent off to the second death, that's eternal death and death and separation from God, the first on the list are cowards. Those who, like Saul, feared man more than God, feared the opinions of man more than God. God. David isn't like this. He isn't like this. He says, I do not get involved with things 
too great or too wondrous for me. Surely, as he says that, he's alluding to Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, which says this, The hidden things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to us and to our children forever. David has a sense of that which is wondrous and tremendous, which are too great for him. I mean, very few people in the whole Bible were given such an insight and perspective into who God is and how God works than David. And yet David would say, there are certain things which are too wondrous for me. So, humility is not cowardice. Humility is not cowardice. And, and David goes on to show us what humility is. Humility is childlike. Verse 2. Instead, I have calmed and quieted my soul. I have calmed and quieted my soul. Is your soul calm? Is your soul quiet? There are battles raging around. Are there battles raging around you? As the Israelites were camped out, the battle was before them, fear was before them. Are you calm and quiet? David knew what it was for his soul to be calm and quiet. What is the soul? That's a question. How would you define a person's soul? In the Bible, we have a number of terms for the same thing, for this idea of a soul. We, we have spirit, we have heart, we have inner man. But how would you define it? The Bible doesn't necessarily give us a clear definition. Dallas Willard says, says this, the soul is the most important thing about you. It is your life. Your soul is the most important thing about you. It is your life. It is your truest self. It is it is the depths of your being from where your affections are born, if you like, from where your affections grow. It is who you are. It is where you find your greatest sense of worth and identity. Who am I really in the very depth of my being? Who am I? My soul, my spirit, my heart, my inner man. Who is who is it that I am truly? Who is it that you are truly? Your soul reflects something of who you truly are deep down, your truest self. We are spiritual beings. You have been made for eternity. You're an immortal soul. Your soul will always exist. Made in the image of God, with the capacity to love and to be loved, with affections and passions. Your soul is that place from which you worship, that which you give your whole self to. And, and, and David says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. So what's the opposite of a soul that is calm and quiet? Well, it's a frantic soul. It's a loud soul. It's a restless soul. It's exhausted and it's overwhelmed. A restless soul going from place to place trying to find a home. Our souls are restless until they find their rest in you is what St. Augustine said. And when you hear 
people share their story of how they came to faith in Jesus, often you'll hear them say, do you know what? I was restless in my career. I was just going at it. And, and yeah, I was doing well. I was getting promotions. But I kept that. I had this sense of where is this leading to ultimately? What is this, what is this ultimately for and about? I, I sensed that my, my whole being was connected into my career and then I realized I was restless with it. You'll hear people say, I was restless going from one relationship to the next. I spent eight years as the lead pastor of a great church in Portsmouth. Most Sundays we would have people just turn up asking for money. Portsmouth is a wonderful city, many different people, but there's a large community of people who are very vulnerable, addicts and people from, from very damaged and broken pasts. And, and they would come to us and it would be quite clear that they were willing to share with you their needs. And it was a privilege to be able to, to, to speak with people like that, to talk with people like that, to help them, to pray with them. Quite a contrast really to this city. Saul, King Saul, was a restless soul, a restless soul. He was, not, he was not a man at peace. And if you read through the story of Saul and David, you'll find this great conflict in his heart, great conflict. Now, on the one hand, he stood tall and above everyone else. On the one hand, he appeared to have it all. He had wealth, he had fame, he had fortune and privilege. He was the king. He stood out and yet his soul was restless. This city is full of souls. This city is full of privileged people. This city is full of people who have done well in life. You probably saw the news report last week. The most expensive city to live in the UK, Winchester. So people who live here generally are homeowners, have great salaries, are successful in their careers, have degrees, and have done well. We are surrounded by affluence. We're surrounded by people who drive fast cars, who have large houses, who have done very well. But I would put to you that we're surrounded by thousands and thousands of people whose souls are restless. Surrounded by people who don't realize their great need. Surrounded by people who are f looking to find peace in what they can touch and in what they can feel, in what they can control. I would say that Winchester is full of people a lot like King Saul, deceived into a false sense of security by the relative comfort of life. You see, all was well for King Saul until he encountered Goliath until he encountered something bigger than him, until he encountered something that he felt he was powerless to do anything about. Tim Keller says this, 
If you want God's grace, all you need is need. All you need is nothing. But that kind of spiritual humility is hard to muster. We come to God saying, look at all I've done, or maybe look at all I've suffered. But God, however, wants us to look at him, to just wash. Or as David puts it in verse 2, I'm like a weaned child with its mother. My soul is like a weaned child. This is profound and challenging truth, especially for the person who has done well, for the good person, for the successful person, for the rich person. Oh, it's hard for a rich person to come into the kingdom of God, Jesus said, very hard. How many people in this city are on their knees enjoying the grace and the kindness of God, worshipping him? We don't come with a message of judgment to anybody. Our message is an invitation. Our message is an invitation to come and to find your rest and your peace in God, in a relationship with God, to, to come to a point of realizing that, that your strivings and your efforts and your works are never going to be sufficient. But praise be to God that he's done everything well. And Christ gifts us his perfection, his righteousness, so that our souls, my soul, is made well by what he has done. I'm like a child. I'm like a weaned child with its mother, dependent, close by, watched, loved, cared for. That's what I'm like. So That's what David was like. As David walked into the battlefield, it was like he was hand in hand with his mum, <laughs> walking, walking beside all these soldiers. It was like God was his mother holding his hand. and He was like a weaned child. See, in this, this is how God is seen by David in this psalm, like a mother, and he is like a child. A mother is very attentive to the needs of her child. A mother will pick her child up and hug her child when her child has fallen over and needs that kind of attention. And, and actually David is saying, God is much like that. So my soul is much like a, a child dependent upon a mother. That's how he arrives into battle. That's how he arrives as he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should dare take on the armies of God? This is the the, the child with his mother hand in hand as he goes to King Saul and says, I'll fight him. Humble, yet bold and courageous because he knows who his God is. We must come like a child. You see, humility. So David is humble. So when he says, Lord, um, my heart is not proud, He's speaking about his, the depths of his being. He's not. He knows that his salvation, he knows that his righteousness, his, his, his perfection, it's not his, it's come from him. He knows who he is, a child of God. And so Jesus teaches us the same thing. 
Come to me, he says. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, you restless ones. Come to me. This is why Jesus took the child and says, to enter the kingdom of God, you must become like a child. Humbly, needy, with vulnerability. That's how I am received by God. My hope is not in my skills and my abilities or my efforts. My hope is entirely in God. This is what he says thirdly and finally in Psalm 131. He says, Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forever. Put your hope in the Lord. This is what humility is. It's to put your hope in the Lord, your trust in the Lord, your confidence in the Lord. You're able to go into any and every battle confident, bold, courageous when your hope is not in yourself, when your hope is in the Lord. And this is precisely what David does. And so as he stands before Goliath, he's not shaking, he's not overcome by fear and terror. He's bold and he's courageous. And this is what he says in 1 Samuel 17, verse 45 to 47. As he eyeballs Goliath, he says this, you come against me with a sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel, you have defiled him, defied him. Today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I will strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God. And this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. This is an incredibly bold and courageous speech. But David isn't going, look at me. Look at how talented and capable I am with a sling. He says, the Lord rescues. The Lord fights. The Lord wins the battle. You're going to see that the Lord is going to do this. His trust is in, is in God and in God's ability to win, and so should ours be. Humility is not thinking much of me, but much of Christ. Humility, as someone has said, is not thinking less of myself, but thinking of myself less. Humility is setting my mind on things above and not on earthly things. Humility is filling my gaze with Jesus Christ, who is the humble king. You see, Jesus came from glory, and Jesus stepped into humanity. He took on flesh. He walked this earth, and he went to the cross. He went to the cross with courage, with boldness, and he went to fight. And he fought sin and Satan at the cross he goes right into the very depth. You think that David's battle with Goliath was something. Jesus went to battle with Satan, with his, Satan's army against sin and evil. And at the cross, he defeated and crushed him once and for all. Jesus died 
humbly. Jesus was humiliated, but he was humble, the humble king. And so the encouragement for you and I today is for us to put our confidence, not in ourselves, humble people know who their God is and fear God, not man. Humility is not cowardice. Humility is courage and boldness when humility is rightly looking to Jesus for help. Let's finish by praying. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, we have the great, humble King. We thank you for the battle that he fought on our behalf. We thank you that he overcame sin and death and Satan triumphantly. We thank you that the victory is his and ours. And I pray, Lord, I pray for those in our city. I pray for those who, like King Saul, appear heads and shoulders above everybody else, but whose souls are restless. I pray, Lord, would you please bring thousands to a place of peace and calm as they receive that invitation to find rest in you. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.